Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2131 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our ongoing series of messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 13 of a 14-week series from the book of James titled, Wisdom is Faith in Action. I pray that it'll be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you, Barb. Sue, thank you, Sue. (laughs) Just never know what might come out of my mouth up here. As Susan Demlow had mentioned that or the song we sang was one of my favorites, too. I love Negro spiritual songs, and I didn't realize it was a new one for most of the church, but I'm glad we sang it because I, it's one that I really enjoy, and it's, our lesson today is on prayer, so I thought it was very fitting for the message today. And as we're continuing our series on the Proverbs of the New Testament, better known as the letter of James, We know that theme, after all these weeks, is wisdom is faith in action. And last week, we continued on with James chapter 5, as we focused on verses 7 through 12, and the message was titled, Patience and Suffering. And this week, we're going to go on and look at verses 13 through 18. And today is patience through prayer, and our focus today will be on prayer. So if you'll join me on page 1885 of your pew Bibles, or if you have your own Bible, Turn to James chapter 5, and we'll read verses 13 through 18, and keep the passage open during the message, because I'll be referring back to it several times. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops." Like a car without fuel, life without prayer will quickly grind to a a halt. A prayer-starved Christian who were supposed to shine in the darkness, were supposed to be lights to the world, to this dark and desperate world, without the electricity, without that power source, the light goes off. And that's what prayer is to us, is that power source that powers us in order to live a powerful and effective life. Show me a man or a woman who is prevailing in prayer on a regular basis, and I'll show you a man or a woman whose faith is very deep. Earnest, fervent prayers moves the heart of an omnipotent God, the one who knows everything and is all-powerful, and our prayers somehow, we don't understand it, will impact that omnipotent God. Yet far too many Christians fill their days with dizzying activities, so much busyness, especially in today's time, 
leaving no time for that critical ingredient that can transform merely human actions into divine acts of power. Now, from the introduction of James' letter, if you remember all these weeks that we've been in the book of James, you may recall that James was well known for his prayer life. In fact, it is said that he had a nickname of Camel Knees because he spent so much time on his knees that his knees were calloused and reflected those of a camel's knees. As one would expect on a book written by a man who was famed for his prayer, the theme comes up repeatedly in this letter. James chapter 1, verse 5, he said, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. And again, in chapter 4, verse 2, he said, Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And now at this climax of his letter where he really focuses in on prayer through patience, James develops this prayer, theme of prayer more fully. In verses 13 through 18 that we're covering today, James continues to develop the idea of how to conduct ourselves with patience as we wait for the Lord's return, which may be this year, it may be thousands of years, but we're to be patient until the Lord returns. Because true faith exhibited through patience manifests itself in prayer. As we face every obstacle, whether it's sickness or sin, the correct response is always prayer. Prayer not only reflects an attitude of genuine faith, it is also reveals a patient endurance that we're willing to take time to pray patiently for God to handle the life's struggles in His timing and according to his promises. As such, prayer becomes an essential link or an essential mark of genuine and authentic faith. James refers to two ends of the spectrum of life in this verse 13, suffering and cheerfulness. The one relates to physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual affliction, anything that might afflict us. It can handle or covers diseases or discouragement, doubt or anxiety, financial hardships or relationship conflicts. In short, it includes anything that causes us trouble or affliction. And what's the response in James? You should pray. People usually don't have a hard time turning to God when their life starts to unravel, when crisis upon crisis comes on them, when pain increases, when worry overcomes them and things start to spin out of control. God finally gets a call then. Siri, call God. I'm in desperate need. But why do we wait until we're in a crisis? My experience that people put off prayer all too often to their last option, or treat it as a time waster in their day that distracts them from working out solutions to their problems on their own terms. But James is clear. Prayer is the solution to every one of our problems. Therefore, everything we do must start with prayer. When we pray, it doesn't mean that God will immediately lift that affliction from us. He never promises us to bring instant relief. In today's culture, we're so used to driving up to fast food restaurants and getting instant food without any effort, except for a little bit of change. But that's not what prayer is about. That's not what, how God works in our economy. He does promise to provide us strength and patient perseverance. Prayer doesn't express itself 
that God will deliver you from the problem and trials, but prayer guarantees that he'll strengthen us through our trials. So when we're afflicted, it's time to pray. When the affliction is lifted, that leads us to cheerfulness. The response is to sing praises. James sees praise as another form of prayer by lifting our hearts in worship to him in thanksgiving to honor God for who he is and what he has done in our lives. The correct response is to turn to God in prayer and praise in all circumstances, the good and the bad. In other words, as Apostle Paul wrote in several of his letters, to pray continuously. James never, or next covers a significant area of prayer which most Christians are familiar. Who hasn't called out to God at a time of illness or sickness, both either for yourself or for a loved one? It seems that most of our prayer requests in our prayer list, even on Sunday mornings, have to do with recovery from illness or surgery or injuries, and there's nothing wrong with that. We're familiar with turning to God when crises arise. So James addresses this issue of physical illness in verses 14 and 15. And the word sick in verse 14 has a basic meaning of being weak or feeble. The Greek word is asenio. And the New Testament often refers to physical sicknesses like in Luke chapter 4 or Acts chapter 9. But it also figuratively refers to be those who are weak in their faith in Romans 4 and Romans 14 or to those who even have a weak conscience that are struggling with sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Here in verses 14 and 15, the emphasis is more on that person who is sick and weak from illnesses. James prescribes three things for this person. First, they must call on those who are spiritual leaders within the church. And this is why we actively keep our members informed through our email prayer chain, so that throughout the week, and not just on Sundays, we can bring these requests for prayer before the Lord as a a congregation. And James even says that our physical illnesses are not to be kept to us privately or personal matters. We're to actually allow the body of Christ to minister to us in our weaknesses, along with the medical community helping out. Second, James prescribes a specific response for those church leaders or church elders or those who are spiritual within the church body, and that is praying and anointing. The Greek syntax combines those two actions, is accompanying the one accompanying the other. Pray while anointing with oil. And we find two distinct uses of the oil in the Bible. The first one involves a religious or ceremonial act like King David when he was anointed king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. This was an anointing or consecration of David. The second one is more of a bit of mundane, and it's the anointing for medical or hygienic purposes. It's like the use of lotion. If you have dry skin, especially in the wintertime, and you use lotion on your skin to help moisturize that skin, this is more of the implication in this verse because ointments were used to cover over wounds so that they would heal. Oils were used to affect the body in specific ways. And we see this in the the parable about the Good Samaritan as he pours wine and oil on the injured man. In Luke chapter 10, verse 34, the wine cleansed the womb. It killed the bacteria that might be in that womb. 
And then the oil or ointment soothed that wound so it could start to heal. It protected the wound so it could, the body could start healing on it. Most likely, James uses this second analogy for oil in this verse. The idea behind the use of both prayer and anointing was that the church should seek to come to the aid of those who are physically or spiritually in need. The medicinal use of oil provided physical comfort while it also promoted a healing process. So please observe here that James has no conflict between prayer and medicine. They're to go hand in hand, not one without the other. The third prescription for the physically ill was that we have to leave the results to the Lord. Ultimately, God does the healing. He may use oils or medicines. He may use the prayers of those who are spiritual, the elders of the church. And he may use their prayers to help the ill to recover. But praying is in the name of the Lord is meant praying according to God's will. This in turn means that we have to accept God's plan and purposes. We don't want people to be ill. We don't want people to pass away. But God has a greater purpose behind some of these times. So the age-old question is, does God heal today? And of course he can. But he may have a greater purpose behind that illness that we don't understand from a human perspective. Now, the former pastor and former Dallas Theological Seminary president, Chuck Swindoll, came up with five laws of suffering. And I thought it fit well in the message today. So I want to share these principles to help the hurting, to erase that confusion that we get in our minds about why we suffer and why God hasn't taken care of that and what God's done about it. So law number one is there are two classifications for sin. The first is the original sin, the sinful condition of all humanity, except for Jesus Christ, that we inherited from Adam, who was the source or the head of the human race. And we're told about this in Romans 5.12. The second is our personal sin, and one, sins that we commit individual, the wronged acts against the precepts of God. And it's because of our sinful condition, Romans 3.23. But the original sin from Adam is the root of our personal sins, which is the fruit. We sin because Adam first sinned and we've inherited that sinful nature. Law number two, the original sin introduced suffering, illness, and death to the human race. If Adam and Eve had not sinned in the Garden of Eden, we would have never known sickness or death. But that being said, I would venture to say if we personally were in Adam and Eve's place, we'd probably make the same choices that they did. So we can't blame it on Adam and Eve. We have to accept that for ourselves. Law number three, sometimes there is a distinct relationship between personal sins and our sickness. David testified of this relationship between the acts of disobedience and his physical ailments in Psalm chapter 32 and Psalm chapter 38. If you abuse your body through drugs or alcohol or other items that will danger your body, unhealthy habits, then we, the result of that can be sin or can be illness. Law number four, sometimes there's no relationship between personal sins and illness. All of us sin, but there may not be a relationship between the sin that we commit, depending on what it is, and us being healthy. Think of someone who is born with afflictions. 
They suffered before they even reached the age where they could commit their own personal sin. Or children like Hazel, who came down with leukemia, with no fault or cause of her own, that's just part of God's plan for that particular child or person. They did nothing to cause it. Others like Job, who were living upright, experienced suffering in Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And Jesus himself never committed any personal sin, and yet he suffered. And therefore, he can fully sympathize with our plight of suffering in this fallen world in Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 5. The last law, law 5, is not, it's not God's will that everyone is healed in this life. Now, some people would say they believe that if you're a believer, you should be able to experience complete physical healing in this life. But as a student of the Bible, I can't find that in Scripture. That's not biblical. We don't know God's plans. We don't understand his, comp comprehend his plans from beginning to end. We would like to be relieved of suffering and sickness. But Romans chapter 11, verse 33 says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. We may not understand it this side of heaven. God may have a greater purpose for our suffering and illness that we'll never understand. But let me clarify a couple points here. First, am I suggesting, suggesting that God doesn't heal? Absolutely not. God can and does heal people. Sometimes it's instantaneously and miraculously, and we have no explanation for it. They go into the hospital with a tumor, and they do a last-minute checkup or x-ray, and it's completely gone. There's no explanation for it. Sometimes, though, he heals us slowly and gradually as we comply to a doctor's orders or the medicines that we're being prescribed. Every time healing happens, though, it is because God is healed. God is responsible. He is the source of all life and health. Even if the doctors and the medicines they give us help to treat us and cure our illnesses, that very wisdom and those very technologies that do that comes from God. God can choose to heal someone miraculously because nothing is too difficult for him. And when those miraculous healings happen, it's because God chose it. And therefore, when God heals in that manner, there's no man or woman can say, well, I did that. No, it comes from God. Second, am I stating that divine healers, certain people with special anointed by the Spirit, can lay hands on people and heal them instantly? According to the scriptures, I don't find that. Yes, in the New Testament times, some people were healed instantly by the apostles, but that wasn't a gift that I find in scripture that was handed out ongoing, especially somebody who claims you come to me and I'll lay my hands on you or you pay me a certain amount of money and you'll be healed. To blame all sickness or sin on the lack of faith, when the healing powers don't work, those, who, those imposters, who do they blame? They blame the people, the sick person who didn't have enough faith to be healed. And that's just tragic. Because that's not how God works in this economy. So let's move on to verse 16. I want you to notice the link between the previous verse 15 and 16 that James says, therefore confess your sins to each other. He shifts from a third person, 
anyone who is sick to a second person your sins. In verse 16, it helps us to understand the whole passage regarding sickness and sin. James is saying, in effect, that there may be people in your church that are sick because of their sinful choices. And if they call upon the spiritual leaders of the church, the elders or those who are spiritual, to come and pray with them, then those who pray with those people need to wait for God to bring restoration. And my encouragement to all of us, including myself certainly, is that we need to preemptively rid our lives of sin so that we don't become ill because of that sin. Verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. In context of James' message, he suggests making amends to those that you have wronged, going to them and saying, I'm sorry that I committed this sin against you, or forgiving those who have wronged you. And that forgiveness is not dependent on whether that person asks you for forgiveness or not. You're to forgive them regardless. If we do not rid ourselves of these offenses that we have in our lives, and all of us fall prey to them, we can become sick, sick, sick deep inside our souls. We'll become plagued with gnawing bitterness and guilt. If we allow the thoughts to fester in our minds and, and permeate our very being without clearing them out with confession and prayer, then they'll consume us. They'll eventually work out in a way in unhealthy habits. Chronic depression, unmanageable stress, underlying anger, and even physical illness. It's scientifically proven in the medical journals, too much stress or too much anger or too much bitterness that we hold inside us can cause us all types of diseases to inflict our body. We need to get rid of those through confession and prayer. When believers in Christ confess their sins to those that they've wronged, their guilt can be healed. When they pray for those who have harmed them, their bitterness can be cured. And that's something all of us need to work on. And guess what? When we release the burdens and the guilt and the bitterness through confession and prayer, the garbage that has contaminated our very souls and diseased our inner life will be cleared away. We can then move on with life. The condition of righteousness before God and others will be and result in our ability to pray more effectively. The remainder of verse 16, if you'll look at it, James affirms, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's once we clear our lives of sin, then we become a powerful person that's effective. And the New Living Translation says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And so far, in our passage today, we've seen three times that we should pray. The first one is where we're afflicted with some sort of trouble. We should pray. The second is when we're physically ill, we should pray. And then the third is when we're strained or stained by guilt and bitterness, we should pray. So now, let's conclude this discourse on prayer. James gives us a fourth example of how we should pray, and this is for specific requests that we might have. Remember, the context of praying is for God to respond to our specific request, and it's okay to go to him with specific requests that we have. It's our life, but once our life is cleared from sin, 
through confession and prayer, we can then go before him with our specific request. But if we get bogged down in that bitterness and, and guilt or a multitude of other sins, not only will our prayers be more or less effective or ineffective, but we may not even know what to pray for or how to pray. The righteous person has the attitude of priorities. Their disposition is oriented toward God's will. When we're in the right spirit, we'll want what God wants for our lives, not what we selfishly want for our lives. And that's what causes prayer of a righteous person to be effective and unusually powerful. The Greek word for effective is energio, and that's where we get our word energy from. The Greek word is an ingredient that turns ordinary utterances into powerful words of prayer. James' word for prayer is desis, and it refers to specific praying for specific needs, petitions, or requests might be even a better translation. And today in the bulletin insert, if you'll look at that, I've given you 12 specific things for which believers are instructed to pray for. And I'm sure there's more in the scripture than these 12, but these stand out. These are things, if you don't know what to pray for, go to this list and refer to it. These are the things. And you'll notice the first four of those were all found in the Sermon on the Mount. And three of these are found in the book of James. James uses the Sermon on the Mount teaching so much in his letter. So they use this as something specifically that we can pray for. So let me offer a few guidelines to how to pray more effectively. First, it involves knowing the scripture. The more you know about the scripture and the more you know the scripture, the more effective you can be in your prayer because you'll know what God's will is for you. So often we pray for God's will that will show us his will and it's already clearly mandated in scripture or laid out in scripture if we just knew scripture well enough. Then we would know whether our prayers are in conjunction or in, uh, in agreement with God's word. Second, it includes being specific, dealing directly with particular issues and asking for specific requests. And third, it embraces, embraces God's absolute faith that God's ability, timing, and wisdom, trusting without reservation that his answers to your petitions will be correct. They may not be what we want, but they'll be what God wants for us. These characteristics of prayers is from a life of a righteous person. And small, so small wonder that this kind of prayer produces wonderful results. And James gives us an illustration. You're wondering, well, I have, that's not that spiritual. I can't pray like that. Well, he gives us an example, the prophet Elijah. And he reminds us that Elijah was as human as we are. Elijah was sinful. He was inconsistent. He was imperfect. He was forgiven. If you remember, Elijah called down fire on the altar and then slaughtered all the false prophets of Baal. And then in the next chapter, he runs away in hiding from the queen because she, he was scared of her. We all have those frailties. But James says, Elijah was as human as we are. But Elijah has specific petitions. And as such, he had an abundance of power that he was able to start and stop rain. Now, before we rush outside and say, Lord, we've had enough rain, make it stop, we have to understand that Elijah had a context for which he prayed those prayers. And that's what James talks about in his, his writing today. Being right, a righteous man, Elijah knew what to pray for, and he knew when to pray for it. 
The Spirit specifically enabled him to discern God's, God's prayer for certain miraculous events because the nation of Israel needed to be brought back to repentance because they were in sin. And he prayed to stop the rain. In 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18 is where that story is found. And then he prayed and the rain began again to produce wonderful crops. Today, a righteous believer can still tune into that same spirit that Elijah had. And we can know how to pray, when to pray, and what to pray for. But even if we don't have a clear sense, sometimes we don't know exactly what to pray for. And that's why I've included these 12 specific things. If you're not sure what to pray for, at least we can refer to these and say, well, I'm praying for these because these come directly from God's word. So to conclude this section on prayer, let's remind ourselves on how it fits in the overall scope of this letter. Verses 7 through 20, which was last week, this week, and next week's lesson, he develops an area that we conduct our, our lives as we patiently wait on the Lord's return. And the central theme is real faith produces genuine patience. Prayer not only reflects an attitude of genuine faith, but it also reveals a patient endurance that we're waiting, willing to wait on God's timing for our request to be answered. And that's his timing and according to his promises. And such a prayer becomes a central mark of our faith in God, our true faith. So what are some practical examples or applications of this prayer? Prayer is one of the most misunderstood and most neglected blessings of our Christian life. The irony is that a prayer is one of the simplest concepts that we can have. It's one of the easiest actions that we can take. We don't have to do anything but bow our head and pray to God or lift our hands to him and pray to God. So let me share four simple and practical lessons that I've gathered from this passage in James. First, prayer is to be continuous. If we pray, if prayer applies to every situation of interdisposition in our life, whether it's illness and suffering or blessings, if prayer covers all that spectrum, then our prayer life should be in the rhythm of God, similar to our heartbeat or similar to breathing in and out. Just as natural as that, we don't even think about it. And that's how our prayer life can become. And I'm not necessarily talking about scheduled events that we pray three or four times a, year, or a day, such as before meals. There's nothing wrong with that. And Daniel was noted for his prayer toward Jerusalem three times a day, even if he knew he was going to be persecuted. What I'm talking about is the need to communicate with God throughout the day, responding to prayer and praises, whatever occurs. You're having a bad day? Pray. You're having a good day? Pray and praise. Believers need to become addicts, addicts of prayer. We need to suffer from chronic prayer in our lives. So the question is for all of us, do we pray to the Lord throughout the day? Or is it an infrequent, rare occurrence for us to pray? And one thing I've tried to put into habit and practice the last few years is when somebody emails me or calls me and asks me to pray, I don't say, well, I will pray for that. I'll pray for you. I try to say, I am praying for you, and I'll stop right now and pray. Because if we say, I will pray for you, we'll forget it. It'll go by, and we won't do it. 
So why not stop? At that moment, you get an re- email request or a call from someone, and just stop and pray for them then. There's nothing stopping us from doing so. Second, prayer is designed to be in every part of our life. So stop thinking about prayer as a fire extinguisher, like we keep under the stove or the cupboard near the kitchen in case we have a kitchen fire. And we grab it when the fire results and we spray out the fire. That's not what prayer is to be. We're not to use it as a fire extinguisher only when we're in crisis. It's not to hang around in the back spaces of our mind until crises arise and tragedy strikes. Yes, prayer will typically follow affliction, it's sickness or sin or fear or loss. That's fine to pray during those times. But it also relates to joyful blessings and thankfulness, intimate conversations with our Heavenly Father. Every kind of situation calls for prayer. So the question is, have we discovered the peace and joy that comes when we respond to the Father in every circumstance? Just like I think it was last week when Janice, a couple weeks ago when Janice lost her keys. Stop and pray for those. She couldn't remember where she put them. That's no less important than praying for somebody who's sick. We need to pray for every circumstance. Third, prayer is not a substitute for responsibility. And so often we make and separate those two. Remember that James says prayer is supposed to accompany the application of medicine or oils. Pray and anoint. We're to do both. Prayer doesn't exclude intelligent action, but actually includes it. We err if we exclude prayer from our planning and actions. We also err if we exclude action from our prayers. Don't pray to be healed and at the same time live a life that's unhealthy. Those two don't go together. Pray to be healed and then live a life that is healthy. Don't ask God to protect your children or your grandchildren and then you completely ignore them. They must go one with the other. Because that isn't faith, that's presuming on God. Prayer and action goes together. Just like if I went out on a cold day, the last couple of days, I'd put gloves on my hand to protect my hand from that cold and bitterness. And the older you get, the easier it is to get cold and your hands turn numb. So I use gloves to help protect me. I take action by putting on gloves to protect my hands from the cold. In the same way, prayer and action must go together. They can't be one without the other. And the fourth one is, prayer is not for the perfect people. It's for the imperfect. James used Elijah as an example of a powerful prayer, but he also said Elijah was as human as we are. You don't need to be a prophet or an apostle to pray effectively. You don't need to be and wait to be perfect in order to pray because we, none of us are perfect. If we waited to be perfect, we would never pray. We need to be cleansed ourselves from the sin and then go before God with our other request. Wisdom comes through prayer, as we're told in John, or James chapter 1. Specific needs are met through prayer in James chapter 4. So yes, the prayers of a righteous person, those who have asked for forgiveness for their sin, are made righteous. That doesn't mean that you're going to live a holy life in everything you do and a great life in everything you do. You'll stumble. You'll mess up probably the next moment. But pray that God will forgive the sins you've committed and then go before him with your prayers. We don't need to be sinless to pray. 
that would be impossible. We would never pray about anything if that was the case. So don't wait to be righteous before you pray. Pray while you wait. While you wait to become more Christ-like. And that's in a, a gradual growth in our lives. Every day we become a little bit more like Christ. We may fall back a step. A step, take two more steps forward, fall back a step. We'll take two more steps forward. So we're making progress and becoming more Christ-like. While we're waiting to become like Christ, we need to be praying. So the answer is, that something I want you to take from this message today is don't forget, God is already listening. Are you praying? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And next week, we'll explore the third lesson in James about patience, and that's patience in correction. And that'll be our final message in James. You probably thought we'd never get through the book of James, didn't you? I think we started in September, but praise the Lord, I've been enjoying it. I hope that each of you have also. And then the following week, we'll begin a new series. So think about it. God is listening. Are you praying? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this message, this wonderful message about prayer, this example of Elijah that was just like we are, and yet his prayers were powerful. Help us to, first of all, take time to pray, to ask you to forgive our sins as we commit them on a daily basis, and then go to before you for praying for those who are sick and ill and in confusion, and pray for those who just need your strength, and then praise your holy name for the blessings, the bountiful blessings that you have and you've given to us each day, the blessing of life, the blessing of waking up every morning still breathing so that we can offer our prayers to you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.